Bye, George. Hello, Tess. It's God. You sure can't tell you're in Jersey. <laughs> Boy, I, I came up in front of... You know, I've never been to this campus. And we drove up in front, and that is the greatest mural I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> that mural makes Norman Rockwell look like Picasso. <laughs> All those naked ladies and those guys standing... <laughs> Oh, man, I'll tell you, Jersey life. And by the way, before we go any further, my name is John Gambling. <laughs> and I'm going to give you the time very shortly. And before we go any further into this fiasco, before we get more deeply involved, I might as well bring it right out in the open, the thing that all of you are, are thinking and I might as well say it. I do not look like I sound the way. <laughs> hey! Now, am I to imply that I look better or worse? What are you applauding? Worse, that's right. But so do you. Every night when I do my show, I have this beautiful image. Oh, this dream. It's 9.30, and I'm pacing in those historic halls at WOR. <laughs> These are the halls through which John Gambling walks every morning <laughs> to fearlessly give you the time. And these are the same halls that Martha Dean walks. Friendly old Martha Dean, interviewing little old ladies who wrote books on cats. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's W-O-R. And every night as I go through there, see, I get this image. You know, I'm a method performer. Now, I have a sneaky method, but I am a method performer. See, it's got to come up from within. You know, i got to get that little spark, that little flame of creativity going. And so I'm fanning it. A little smoke comes up. A little spark, you know, a little fire. And then I begin to see this image of this audience out there in the darkness, way out there, out in Jersey, <laughs> they're in Philadelphia, Queens, and Flushing. <laughs> Isn't that a great name for a town, I'll tell you. <laughs> if you've ever been in Flushing, it's a beautiful name for that town. <laughs> and, and I see this audience, see, and boy, they're square-jawed and... and Sensitive eyes. And they're, 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 they're people of infinite sensitivity. Honesty. And they're just waiting out there. And then this. <laughs> you, you listen to them giggling back there. Well, now, you see, there's a lot of problems. If, 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 uh, since I'm here tonight as a, as a live performer, and I'm sure that most of you have heard me on the air, Either that, or you think I'm going to give a lecture tonight on Vietnam or something. I don't know. Uh, you've probably heard me on the air. And I'm always given the problem, you know, when I, when I have a, make a live appearance, is whether or not I should perform or if you want to see another side. You know, what do you do if, say, you invite J.D. Salinger here? 
Do you ask him to write sentences? <laughs> you know, does he say, uh, society is rotten? Just the way I use the verbs. So, I, Well, <laughs> oh, it's a great problem. See, and, and when you're working on the radio, beautiful, you have a wonderful audience, see, because it's all silent. They can't get back at you. Now, maybe you don't know, since you listen to WOR, we're on 710 on the dial. Now, if you can imagine the dial, see, it goes like this. See, over here is 550, down here is 1600. You know, you see the little numbers, 150, 550, and so on. At 710, right smack dab in the middle, is big old fat-ass WOR. <laughs> There's a lot you don't hear on the radio, and that's... <laughs> Hell of a lot, I might say. And here it is, right in the middle, say, 710. And all the rest of the dial sort of droops off on either side. All the slums, the little stations hanging on, you know. These other guys are calling up other guys, you know, all night long. Yeah, you think they ought to fix the streets in the Bronx? Yeah, Brent Crandall, here he is. Next question, Vietnam? The bastards ought to get out. Yes, next question? Yes, uh, the Yankees? Well... I'll tell you about the Yankees. They didn't do a shortstop. Yes, next question, yeah. It's universal slob knowledge, see. The instant question, the instant answer. And that drifts off and until you get way off on the other end, see, and you hear nothing but whistles. And, you know, guys selling seat covers, and, you know, and guys, preachers down there, and all this stuff it sort of droops off, and right in the middle, 710, boom, W-O-R. 50,000 watts. This great, big, fat, hairy station, you know. <laughs> Little old ladies and cats and interviews and commercials and all of it. See, 710. Now, you only hear us. Remember that in this area. 50,000 watts. We cover 27 states. Do you realize the temptations this gives me? <laughs> I'm serious. That mic comes on at 10.15 and... Every night there's that temptation just to tell Jersey what it can do. You know, hey, Jersey! And four million guys say, what do you want? And I say, you know what? I said, son of a bitch. Oh, there's terrible temptations, yeah. And, and, and we just drift out like a green-purple fungus of fog. Sneaks out all over Jersey past Teaneck and through Camden out around Pennsylvania and all the way out west. Well, at the time that I am on the air, now get this, on Saturday night when I'm doing the, the show from the village, the limelight, and that is unbridled orgy. You've heard those goatish cries of passion coming out of the village? Oh, let me tell you, there are 28 trillion people in this country who feel that if they could get to the village... I can only get out of T-neck, for Christ's sake. <laughs> Must be terrible to be so close to civilization and yet so far. <laughs> you know, just to see it on the horizon, you know. There you are in Hackensack. <laughs> God, or Secaucus, you know. Walking around. Well, you see, this, this is a common problem all over the country. There are guys walking around in Zanesville. Can you imagine living in Zanesville, Ohio? I don't mean going through it, living there. Staying there, just walking around, you know. What are you doing, Circleville, Ohio? You just stand and look. 
<laughs> Guys once in a while eat a sandwich, stand in front of the place where they sell Cokes, and they watch the turnpike. <laughs> you know, the turnpike is a way of life now in America. As a matter of fact, over at the Howard Johnson at the Interchange 12, you can buy a beanie that says souvenir of the turnpike. <laughs> doesn't say where you went. You can get souvenir route 9, you know, little beanie. <laughs> souvenir of route 22. And so, in, in a place like Indiana, perhaps you're not aware that the turnpike doesn't even stop in Indiana. Goes right over. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, it's raised up. You know, you guys are used to turnpikes that are on the ground, see, where you can at least see Jersey when you're riding it, or at least see the swamps, you know. <laughs> and in Indiana, they, it just goes right over, see, and they watch the cars go by. They stand there. There goes a whole bunch to the east. There goes another bunch going west. Nobody gets off at Griffith, Indiana. This is a town that people only go from. <laughs> Have you ever known anybody who said recently, I think I'll take my two weeks in Indianapolis this year. I'll go and watch them make tires. <laughs> Nobody goes there, see? And so on a Saturday night, remember this, at 10.30, they hear these goatish cries of passion coming out of the village. They all heard of the village, see? They hear this sneaky voice. It's drifting out all over. Well, I'm going to tell you something that you don't know, possibly. That we are not the only station on 710. There is another one. And they're out there in Toronto. Big 50 kilowatt. <laughs> well, you can imagine what's going on there, see? They're blasting down at the States. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> They're yelling down a big 50 kilowatt, and we're yelling at Indiana. They're yelling at Indiana. Well, how many times have you ridden late at night in your car, and you hear these stations fading in and out from all over the country? Well, at 9, 10, 10 on a Saturday night, we come booming into Wisconsin. And there I am, see? <laughs> these guys are driving along, see? They're just about ready to reach for the dial. When I fade out, and in comes the other one. And back and forth we go. First me, then him. Well, at 10.30, they put on Billy Graham. <laughs> just imagine the show they get in Wisconsin. <laughs> you guys think you get a show. Well, you know how Graham comes on, you know. He comes on big. He says, oh, well, look. I see sin, I see degradation everywhere I look, decaying. The society is crumbling as we stand here. And then he fades out, see. <laughs> in comes his voice and says, there I am sitting on the front seat of my Mercury with this chick, see. Then I fade out. <laughs> and he comes in and he says, now is the hour of decision. <laughs> and... Forty-nine million guys holler, go, chef, go! <laughs> and you should see the mail Billy Graham gets. 
He gets these letters that start out, oh, they keep sending them down to me from Toronto. It says, Dear Bill, you old son of a bitch. That story, <laughs> but that chick was fantastic. <laughs> and I get these letters that say, Dear Dr. Shepard, that lesson that you taught us all, and we enclosed $10 to carry on the good work. Well, I do, you see. I take that 10 bucks and... <laughs> You know, it's all a matter of definition how you define good work, you know. And I, you know, I got a little thing going at the bar down there, and we swing. And the best part of it all is that right in the middle of, of a fantastic allegory, Billy Graham is saying, as the, as the walls of Jericho came tumbling down in that great... He fades out, and there is an unexplained burst of applause. Do you realize what kind of theological problems this is bringing to the Midwest? Good and evil every night, fist fighting it out there. And evil wins. Evil wins, he gets the laughs. So this problem is, a, is an old problem. Of course, maybe when you, when you have to face American life the way it is, you know, great American life, it's fantastic. And we're all part of it. And let's admit it, we all dig it. There it goes. <laughs> I'll tell you, though, we all dig American life. We're all part of it. And, and whenever I think of American life, oh, oh, the, the real substance, the stuff of which it's made, I, 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 think, I think of a guy driving along the Jersey Turnpike. He's in his Mustang, see. It's old Charlie. He's driving along. Saturday night. And all of you know that Saturday night is... Uh, <laughs> it's... Uh, maybe this is the Saturday night. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's... Uh, gee whiz, maybe. You know? And Charlie's a little worried, see? Six weeks he's been going with this chick now. He's oh, maybe this is the night, see? <laughs> he's driving along in his Mustang. And you know, you know, he's driving along... The, the turnpike, see, and he's right out there by Interchange 12, and you know how it is. All that crud is drifting down from the Jersey air. And you can see it on his wood, his Mustang, and on the side of his Mustang is this tin horse. You know that tin horse that leans there? And the hoofs are slightly rusty, see. It's rusted there, and he's driving along, and you can hear the bad valves clunking a little bit, and he's got a, you know, he's got a boot in the rear end, and he's going along there, his great Mustang, see, and, and some kid has written a fantastic four-letter word in the dust on the back, see, which he doesn't know, see, he's driving along. And, and next to him is his chick, Clara, see. And they're going out through that great turnpike, and they're on their way to the American Nirvana. The Howard Johnson. <laughs> I just wonder how many people picture heaven as a great Howard Johnson. <laughs> it's air-conditioned, and they always have all 28 flavors. <laughs> you know, we, we sit here and laugh because we live in the East. You know, you guys can do a lot of stuff here, but do you realize in Indiana the biggest thing to do is to go to the Howard Johnson and get those rubber clams? <laughs> That is Thanksgiving dinner and everything all rolled into one. And they talk about it for months. 
Yeah, they talk about it. And, and guys will look forward for weeks to get the rum raisin ice cream. And they arrive and they're out of it. It's, it's Indiana life. And, and I keep seeing this guy in Jersey driving along, see. Typical Jersey scene. See if you identify it. He's driving along there, seeing Turnpike. And he and his chick are heading for the Route 3 drive-in. Well, boy, there's a lot of action. A lot of... <laughs> There's a lot of folk rights in the Route 3 drive-in on Saturday, yeah, I tell you that. There's a lot more happens in those cars than ever happens on the screen, you know. A lot of ways, see. And he drives in. It's Saturday. There's old Clara beside him. And here's that screen. It's four miles across. And, and it's so high that the jets have to go over it, you know. It's a fantastic screen. It's even, there's little clouds floating by on the top of it, you know. And it's vaguely rainy, coming down. Have you ever watched, believe me, have you ever watched a Steve Reeves movie through the rain? And it's drifting down. He's got his windshield wipers going and this crud is drifting down. Up there, Steve Reeves is walking around. He's Hercules, see. He's wearing a bearskin rug. Or maybe it's Charlton Heston, painted orange, see. He's being God or something this week, see. And he's walking around. He's got the bearskin rug. The guy's looking up there, see. He's sitting there on that plastic, that, that neo-romantic, late Roman plastic upholstery, see? It's light blue, and he's looking up there. Oh, boy. And now you see that fantastic scene going on up there. That rain is drifting down. And beside him, in silence, is sitting Clara. And they're watching, see? And this little speaker is hanging on the window. It's terrible when the voice of God comes out of a two-inch speaker. You know? You know? Thou shalt not kill. Thou You know? And he's sitting there in the rain. is drifting down. And then comes that great moment. See, they always in every picture, no matter what it's about, there's the love scene. The fantastic moment when the hero approaches the heroine and that music begins to build behind it. We all know the sound of love music the instant we hear it on the screen. And I suspect millions of people feel cheated. If they figure that they have never fallen in love in their life. Because the music ain't started yet, you know? <laughs> I'd know if I loved Charlie, you know? I know what love is. It goes da da cha cha. It's building and Charlton Heston's walking around, you know. He's got his shield and he's approaching Audrey Hepburn, you know, and he's walking up a bearskin, painted orange. And the guy says, oh, God, is that romantic? He's beginning to sweat. And then is that great male moment, which we, only males know this moment. I don't know whether chicks even are aware of it. It's that moment when your right arm begins to sneak up the edge of the chair. You know, what? what's she going to do? Which way is she going to jump? You know, which way, you know? Look at them all applaud. Little fat guys with glasses are all applaud. <laughs> they know they've been through hell, I'll tell you. Week after week. <laughs> So that hand is going up like, it's like a snake, you know. All you need now is a little apple on the dashboard, you know. Adam and Eve, you know, a little golden apple with a bite out of it. He's about to make that fatal mistake. 
She's going like this. And you know that moment, men, when your arm sneaks over the back of the chair? Sit there. You're waiting to see which way she goes. Then she goes, and you hear her hit the door, you know. And then you sit there. Just resting my arm, you know. Then you pretend you're reaching in the back for something. And one of the worst moments is how to gracefully get your arm back. Because you're getting a cramp all the way down to your ass, you know. Oh, Jesus. Incidentally, that is another, <laughs> that's another moment of realism you never see in the movies. I think no wonder people are always bugged by real life. Because we really are movie-oriented, you know? And, and how many times have you had this fantastic emotional moment, you know, with this chick? And she's looking at you, and both of you are looking at your eyes, and all of a sudden, you've got it. You're getting this cramp. <laughs> Your arm is all of a sudden paralyzed. And it's going up your back and down to your feet. And, like, and she says, what's the matter, Fred? I just can't contain my life. No wonder we think we are not making it. Boy, I'll never forget one time I'm about 15 and I got braces. And I am in, I'm, I'm in the front seat of the car with this girl, and it was one of the very first times I ever kissed a girl, and we started a kiss, and she had braces. We sat there for 45 minutes, trying to get unhooked. And no wonder, you know, these, these things, he's found, and here he is, he's sitting there, you know, he's got his arm up there, and now he's sneaking it back, it's Charlie's. And the rain is drifting, but hope never is dead in the human breast. He's sitting there now, see I'll give her another 15 minutes. I'll just let her warm up. It's, she's probably a little nervous. <laughs> and she's sitting over there, you know, the great, you know, inside of her. You can see, you can see the head inside there. She says, oh, my God. Every week, this klutz. Why do I have to have pimples, huh? She's, and he's sitting over there, oh, boy, wow. And they're both, you know how when you go to the drive-in, how your car tilts back? And you sort of look uphill at it, you know? You can just see the edge of his dashboard. And it's cutting off the bottom of Charlton Heston's. And they're both looking at this picture, and you can see, you can see outlined against it, this little plastic statue of Christ on his dashboard like that, you know? Looking down, and it's got this little halo on a spring, see? <laughs> You've seen them. They're wonderful, see. And as Christ says, yes, love thy neighbor. And he's saying, yeah, you know. He, you know, he's, I just believe in that, see. And right next to that plastic statue of Christ is this little plastic Casey Stengel. With a little net hat wiggling, you know. It's all Jersey, all wrapped up in this car, see, and they're sitting there, they're now on the second wheel, and you can smell the Chinese egg rolls drifting in, you know, from that place back there where they sell the pizzas and the coffee, and it's all drifting. All of a sudden, the guy in the next car throws a beer can out. It bounces off the hood, boing, and I'm sitting there, oh, gee, and the romantic. And in the car on the other side, you hear the window go down real quick. After all, it's a triple feature, you know, and he's had 17 egg rolls and four pounds of popcorn, six beers and a Coke, you know. Oh, 
Oh, boy, you know, it's, 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 how can you explain, this is America, you know, how can you explain this to de Gaulle? <laughs> and when he drove in, of course, there's a big sign over the gate that says, get more out of life. Go to a movie. And here they are, and the kids are crying in the cars, he's sitting there. No wonder people today are retreating at the dreams. Like, for example, Playboy. Are there any Playboy readers here tonight? <laughs> well, there they are. Mark them well. They're in trouble. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, the Playboy is typical of the type of dream that we're snatching at today. There's the James Bond dream. There's the Playboy dream. There's the Vogue dream. All these different dreams everybody's grabbing. See, trying to hold on. Because what he figures is going on in his life is, is a fluke. It's nothing, see. Are you aware that there are four and a half million guys? There is that many playboys that are sent out, see, every month. Four and a half million guys every month. Get this. <laughs> they can hardly wait, you know. They, they, there it is. It's quivering in their hands, thick and heavy, see. <sighs> Miss June has arrived. <laughs> and they grab it, you know, and she just blew them out, she comes. <laughs> The great thing, you don't even have to open the damn magazine. Just shake it. See, she falls right out. You know. She hangs down there. She's looking out of the shower. <laughs> Boy, you know, she, all this stuff just flying out of the shower. See, she looks like about 45 beach balls having a fight. You know, <laughs> hanging out there. He said, oh, my God, Miss Joan, she's here. Oh, oh well. And, and the caption underneath it. Have you ever read the caption? Well, you know, they, they write on Trump. <laughs> yeah, there's a caption, and they're, oh, they're so great. It says, Miss June, your playmate for June is Barbie Barbie. Barbie is studying slum clearance at NYU. And there she is, all hanging out, you know. And all these guys, oh my God, she can clear my slums anytime. <laughs> she is a student of Kant and Kierkegaard. And, and you know, she just sort of hangs out there, and the guy looks at this, oh boy. And then he puts it up next to Miss May. And then he throws Miss May away. See, that's the beauty of the plakers. You can toss them out every month. See. They only cost 60 cents. They never ask about the rent. They never look out of the shark. You imagine you look out of the shark. Charlie, we're in trouble this month. No, they never even imply that, see. So here's this poor guy. He's grabbing at life. You know, he's a playboy reader. Oh, by the way, speaking of that, how many of you have seen the new women's magazines recently. I mean magazines like Vogue, Mademoiselle. Now this is the feminine counterpart of Playboy. It's also Dreamsville. You know, all seen. Have you noticed one of the most interesting things is that Playboy writes about women. That's all they write about. Vogue writes about women. <laughs> they never write about men, they write about women, you know. Can you imagine what it would be like if Vogue had a centerfold out? <laughs> yeah, that's the sensitive one there, didn't it? Yeah. Yes, can you imagine that centerfold out? Your rabbit of the month. 
He fought Shirley Applerock. Shirley Applerock drives a truck for the MP. And here he is in his jock strap, you know. I would not hold my breath, man. I don't think there's a chance. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, you know, and, and wait, oh, you know, speaking of Vogue magazine, <laughs> one of the greatest articles I ever saw in Vogue is double-page spread, see? And it shows one of the new dynamic chicks. You know, the kind that looks like they're made out of stainless steel. Thin as a razor, sharp. And she's sort of leaning forward, see? And she's got this hand out like that. And she's dressed in a leather lumber jacket. <laughs> See, she's got a T-shirt that says "Stolen from the University of California Track Department." And she's laying. She's got these high leather boots. And you look at this chick. See, and there's nothing. Else. She goes straight up and down. And you look carefully, and you see a few little bulges. <laughs> and you're fooled, see, because that's where she keeps her plug tobacco. <laughs> and you see these little bulges. See, and. And she's got this big bullwhip. And back of her is her Harley Davidson. 1,250 cc's, this great big four-barreled monster. You can see the smoke rise. She's got her crash helmet there beside her. And her hand is out like this. What a scene. And there's this little chain hanging on it. And on the chain is this little man. He's got a little skinny suit, you know. And he's got a little fluffy... Little fluffy shirt, his hair is all flowing. He's got a hell of a lot more hair than she has, you know. It's all flowing back. And the caption reads, Pick your man carefully. He is your most important accessory. <laughs> Great Scott, you know. No wonder this little guy with the pimples is reading Playboy. <laughs> and then he comes across, how many of you have ever, have you, have you seen that great ad in Playboy? They've got this full page ad. Beautiful thing. It says, what sort of a man reads Playboy? <laughs> Have you seen that? Oh, he's fantastic. He's always shown in his pad, see. And he's about six feet nine. <laughs> oh, he's built just like a, oh, he's got wedge and a big shoulders. And he tapers down to the waist. And he's wearing this beautiful Italian suit. It's, it's, you can just see it's been woven by tiny Italians by hand. <laughs> just magnificent. He's beautiful. His hair is sort of falling down, a little cute Tony Curtis thing. You know, you know he's, he's got an orange face, and he's, he's standing like this, you know. And he's got this Filipino bowl. It's made out of pure Filipino oak. And he's mixing a salad. <laughs> in his pads. And you can see back on the walls, you can see these Russian pots hanging and all this stuff. What a pad he's got. Wow. He's mixing salad. And underneath it, it says, the playboy man is suave, sophisticated. He's a man who knows how to work hard and play hard. He's a man of exquisite taste, a man of today, a man of action. And here he is. You know, he's got this, you know, you got to learn how to stand right, too. With a little thing, you know, it's all from the ballet, you know. And behind him is this chick. And she's looking at him. Oh, and she looks like Sophia Loren, you know, that kind of blouse is all ripped off. And she's looking at him with the eyes just shut. 
And here he is. <laughs> and then you know what kind of a man reads Playboy. <laughs> Scary. Just mixing the salad thing. Oh, no wonder we're all, you know, we're all reaching and grabbing at little things as best we can. In fact, you know, I, I got a little thing here just given to me tonight. Tells you a little bit about what's going on. Look at that. This was taken from the current issue of Batman magazine. Now, this is where you see... You hear him applaud. Wait. <laughs> Wait, fella. <laughs> this is where you see what's really going on. I've always felt that you find out more about life in any given society in the junk, the crap they turn out. I mean, really, you don't think that we're represented by Henry Moore and Picasso in our time. Nah, these are, these are biological sports. The real stuff is found in the Daily News. Oh, yeah, I think I think a hundred years from now, a copy of the Daily News is going to be more valuable to an anthropologist than anything Picasso ever, will ever do. I mean, crash photos on page three. The bodies are laying all over the place. And underneath it, it says, how long? Oh, boy, wow. You know, you could just see crash photos. And I've always thought that this is where you're going to find the real stuff. Look at Batman magazine, see? And it shows four of these, these Superman types. You know, got, they've got the suit on. You know, that, that stuff that looks like they've been sprayed. They're all wearing masks. I wonder what they're afraid of. <laughs> Who's going to spot them? They all got these masks. You know, there's four of them. One guy's got a red suit. One guy's got a blue suit. And here's a guy with an orange one, see? And in, in the foreground is the monster. He's the evil doctor who has got all four of these guys, including Batman himself, under his sweat. There it is, under his swim. <laughs> Sorry, fellow. Well, this is not the last picture. Batman gets him in the end. It's all right. <laughs> And so here's evil Dr. Cyclops, old rotten doctor, see? And he's got his hand raised, and you can see his beetling brow, and he says, not only are you doomed, not only are you doomed, but so is everyone else that you have touched. Not only are you doomed, but everyone you have touched. And he's looking at him. And these four guys, you know, little balloons over the head, you can see what they're thinking. They're not saying it. They're thinking, see. And the first guy says, Oh, great Scott, Gene Loring, I've signed her death warrant. And the guy next to him says, I gave, oh, no, I gave Iris West the kiss of death. And the guy next to him says, oh, Poor Carol, Carol Ferris, who she is in deadly danger. And Batman says, Robin, what have I done? Oh. I did not make it up. There it is. This is going into my vast trivia file so that they will know how it was in our day and age. Oh, man. Oh, she's a little embarrassed back there, this Batman fan. Didn't you know that was going on, you know? Have you ever had a feeling that, that, that the whole world is turning camp? You know, and that, that Johnson is part of a TV show? Oh, yeah. Hey, you know, speaking of that, we've only got a, 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 compar a comparatively limited time tonight. And, uh, no, you see, I've got my radio in the car. I don't want to miss that guy that comes on. And, and, and 
since most of you have heard me and seen me work tonight a little bit, how about having a question and answer period? Who would like to fist fight here? <laughs> this is when it really begins. And look, let's, let, let's lay down. You want to do that? No, seriously. All right. Okay, then what you do, anybody who has a question, stand up and, and call it out loudly when I point to you. And then, you know, we'll go from there. Who wants to be the first one? Yeah. What does a brass <laughs> You'll never find out. You'll never find out, son. <laughs> I don't play second-rate Jews harp. That's a bad Jews harp, son. Here, I've got my own. Thank you. Here, I'll show you I can play it. Now, the Jews harp is an instrument that is... is <laughs> Look, a Jew's harp is not meant to be just struck. It is meant to be played, son. Listen carefully. Listen, I play this son of a bitch. Don't laugh. Listen. Now, wait a minute. Now, cut it out now, fellas. All right, now, you do not accompany Horowitz when you're sitting in the Carnegie Hall. Learn, son. Watch. Next question. Yes. How about the rest of the antidote, Shepard? You promised to it. Promised well, I, I got a letter from the University of Pennsylvania, and they say they want to go all the way. Uh, it's interesting that since I put that terrible curse music on my show, my listening audience has dropped by one-third. And, and since, obviously, it didn't work on you, you don't have to worry. You are an old man inside. It only works under people under 18. Yes. <laughs> what is the name of my theme song? None of your business. <laughs> Next question in the back there. Am I going to celebrate D-Day tonight? What do you think I've been celebrating? That's an allegory, son. Next one. There's another guy in front of you. Yeah. That is because of a federal law. No, it is. It literally is. Uh, a lot of people are not aware. Uh, he just asked a good question. You do not have to be 21 to get in the limelight. That is a misnomer. You have to be accompanied by someone who is 21 to get in. Now, we've had five-year-old kids down there. I don't know what the hell they got out of it, but they were there. <laughs> and, and scarred them for life. But we've, uh, the reason this is so, there is a federal law, which I, I guess a lot of people are not aware of, that any... Anything that emanates, a broadcast that emanates from a place where liquor is served, must obey interstate law. In short, my show is heard in Connecticut and Jersey and everywhere, you know, outside of New York. So we have to obey the liquor laws of all the states, not just New York. 
And so we have to, we have to really comply with Connecticut, several other states, which require a 21-year-old limit for people coming into a bar. So does that answer your question? Very good. It's not just an arbitrary ruling. And incidentally, it also adds another thing, too. You've got to realize that I have a feeling of, of, of personal responsibility, too. That if I were to come on the air some night, I'm doing a show, and five or six kids who are 18 years old show up, 17, 18, and they get drunk. They do this, you know. And the next thing you know, they're all killed out on the turnpike because they came to my show. I, you know, it's not a very good feeling. So my feeling is that if you if you want to drink and if you want to you're going to get bad, go somewhere else. Don't come around me. <laughs> but really, uh, the limelight is it's a, it's a it's an interesting thing down there. It's a great show. There's very little real drinking down there, but they do serve liquor. And there's a great atmosphere there, and almost everybody who comes down is, is, is astounded when they, they, they feel the atmosphere that is there during the show. It's very different from the way it is during the week. And uh, I think you'd enjoy it. If you can get somebody who will take responsibility for you, fine. I can see you're irresponsible. <laughs> His glasses are all clouded up. I don't know what he's thinking of. Yeah, in the back there. No, they aren't. Flick, Schwartz, and Bruner were real people, and I had a fantastic experience with Flick the other day. <laughs> uh, for those of you who don't know what he's talking about, that, that there are three characters that run through. You see, I work on the air as a short story writer, literally. I take people out of my past or people I know and put them and use them as composite characters, just the way any good writer would. You don't write out of a vacuum. And Flick, Schwartz, and Bruner are real people. I use the real names, but they're not really exactly like they are in the stories. I've taken other, naturally, I've taken other characteristics. But Flick owns a tavern that he used to, uh, I used to help him clean in the morning when he was, when we were kids. And I haven't seen Flick since I was 15. Well, he happens to play a major role in a novel, which I've just finished. In fact, the entire action takes place in his tavern, Flick's Tavern. So I figured, you know, maybe I better call him and get, <laughs> you know, get the, at least let him know what's, you know, what's going on here. So I haven't seen him since I was 15. So I called this tavern all the way out in Hammond from, from New York. And it, I could hear the phone ringing. All of a sudden, it picks up. Hello, Flick's Tavern. I said, Flick, is this Flick? He said, yeah, what do you want? I said, this is Shepard, Gene Shepard. Who? I said, Shep, don't you remember Gene Shepard from Cleveland? Oh, yeah, yeah, for Christ's sake, what do you want? Gee, where have you been? I, you're, where are you calling from? I said, New York. New York? I says, yeah. Oh, wow, I was the water there. I said, well, it's raining. It's raining here, too. Ain't that funny? Yeah. I said, say, Flick, I wanted to ask you a question. And it's a very important question to me now. Uh, you are in a book. A book. He doesn't read, see. <laughs> I, and I says, you're in a book that I just wrote, and I want to know whether it's okay. And, and it, it's already parts of it appeared in Playboy. He says, Playboy? I says, yeah. He says, you know, maybe that's why these guys have been coming in and looking at me and saying, are you the real flick? <laughs> I says, yeah, you're the real flick. So does that answer your question? They're real. Uh... Bruner, I don't know where he is. He just disappeared out of my life, and as far as I know, he's gone. Schwartz was killed in the war. 
And Flick is still running. Yeah. Uh, how would you compare George A's type of humor with today's comedians? No comparison. <laughs> no, because AIDS humor, uh, my, uh, no, AIDS humor was humor of a man looking out. Today's humor is largely self-pitying. Wally Cox is always talking, or, or uh, uh, Woody Allen, his whole act is built on how chicks don't like him and how tough it is to be Woody Allen. Uh, Lenny Bruce's humor is all based on how tough it is to be Lenny Bruce. Mort Saul's humor is all based on how rotten they are to him. You know, the administration and all his friends who think right. And uh, AIDS humor was a humor that he looked at all the, the, you might say, the ridiculousness in mankind. He didn't get angry. He just thought it was funny because he knew it was immutable. It couldn't change. It was always going to be thus. Uh, my humor is, in a way, like AIDS. And I won't ever be as popular, uh, I don't think an aide in this day could ever possibly be as popular, because most people are self-pitying today. And they will relate, say, to Holden Caulfield, catcher in the rye. I wonder how many latent Holden Caulfields are here tonight. <laughs> and, they, they, you know, Holden Caulfield, who defined all of his life as, as this rotten bunch of phonies. You know, he's a fantastic phony spotter. And... Uh, yeah, and, and, and he, he defines all of life as all this, this ridiculous society attacking him. And uh, everybody reading it identifies with Holden Caulfield. Nobody identifies with the little short, fat kid with pimples in the shower that he talks about. Even short, fat kids with pimples reading Catcher in the Rye in the shower don't identify with him. <laughs> so so uh, it, it, the, when you ask about humor, that... The, that when you really are dealing... You see, I think what you're asking, you're asking a question, if anybody in the English department here might be interested, uh, I think you're asking a question, uh, what is the, what's the difference between comedy and humor? Now, humor is rarely practiced today. Comedy is. And they're called the same thing. They are not. Uh, uh, comedy, the sole purpose of comedy is to make you laugh. That's all, really. Now, it may use contemporary themes superficially. It may even use serious themes superficially, but its aim is to make you laugh. One-liners, boom, boom, boom. That's comedy. Woody Allen. Whereas humor does not necessarily make you laugh. That, that a laugh is the byproduct of humor. And so you don't sit and laugh out loud at Thurber. You really don't. But you will possibly at, say, uh, Woody Allen. But Thurber's work is far deeper. Uh, Walter Mitty is far much, much more of a tragedy, true tragedy, than, say, anything Woody Allen ever does. And that goes for my work, too. When you hear me, you probably, you're waiting for 15 minutes to get the laugh. But that's, it's designed to be that way, that, that I'm telling you a story rather than a one-line joke, which really is one of the prime differences between humor and comedy. Uh, yeah. When is the he asked when is my next story in Playboy coming out? It's scheduled for July. And uh, whatever happened to Ernie? Ernie, now he's asking a question about a great moment. Do you want to hear about that great moment? No, it was one you know, whenever I whenever I read whenever I read army stories, 
You know, stories like Mailer and and all these people. I, I, I think that, that, that they really don't, you know, they don't really write about the army. They, they write about war. They write about evil and things. They're not really writing about what actually goes on in the army. And, and this is a, is a true incident which I will always remember as one of the one of the truly surrealistic, fantastic moments in my army career. I'm in a signal corps, see. You got that? Already, there's two strikes against me. How many of you know the signal corps song? Everybody knows the air corps song, you know. You know, off we go into the wild blue yonder. All the guys in the signal corps had a fantastic set of obscene lyrics to that. And we would walk past these fighter planes, you know. And these fighter pilots would look out at us, you know. I'll never forget one day, one day we are out, a bunch of Signal Corps guys were out in the boondocks, right in the middle of the, right in the middle of the Florida Everglades. There's palmettas and swamp and crud all over us, you know. And we've been out on maneuvers for about four weeks and we're covered with heat rash and bugs and we've got, we've got the stubble and sunburn and we're, we're putting up this damn wire all across the state of Florida through the swamps. Now, about every 10 minutes, this squadron of planes would go, Ooh. they're heading for Jacksonville and the chicks, see. <laughs> Up there in the clean blue. And here we are down there. And one day, a group of fighter planes went, Ooh, P-51s. And they see us, see, and they're doing a little maneuvering around us. And the lieutenant says, all right. All right, you guys, line up. Let's go. It's kind of a twos. We all stand there with our pliers and junk, sweating. Now what? Says, all right, you guys, we're going to do a little fancy drill march in here. Uh, Gasser, you go over there and stand over there. Uh, Edwards, you stand over there. You, uh, Fred, you make the, uh, you make the you. Get on the top. And... <laughs> It was the first creative marching I've ever seen. I've often wondered when the University of Michigan band is going to do it, you know? In color, coast to coast. <laughs> You'll have to explain that to her when you get back to tea neck. <laughs> so, you know, it's that kind of scene. And we are now in a troop train. Now, any guys ever been in a troop train? They are not like what you think. I mean, guys don't sit around and sing the ballad of Roger Young, you know. And there, I, 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 all the years I was in the Army, I never once saw Van Johnson. Not once. And, and, you know, I never once saw Errol Flynn or any of those guys I see in the movies. There were all a whole bunch of guys standing around with me with thick glasses, you know. Walking around, little lieutenants who were mad. They used to be coat and suit salesmen from Bronx and Queens. And they're all standing. And so we're on our way. We're in a troop train. We have no idea where we're going. Absolutely no. It's a sealed troop train. What a feeling that is. And they, I remember we're all lined up outside. Oh, boy, that's scary. You know, they have this train. It's on the siding. And we are taking off from this camp. It's, it's Fort Sheridan, Illinois, you see. And this is it. We're all standing there with our tin hats. We've got 6,000 pounds of equipment. The rifles are sticking up. we got the morphine. You know, they have a little morphine. Oh, they got the... Gee. They've got all this in the trench knives. Have you ever held a trench knife? What a scary thing that is when they gave me a trench knife. You know? 
And the tent pegs were all standing there with a hundred pounds of equipment. We're waiting in front of the train. And this lieutenant's walking around. He says, all right, when I start calling out the names, column of twos to the right, into the train and on the double. Let's move out. All right, right face. Here we go. Adams, Murphy. He starts reading down the line. All right, all right. And the guy's hip, hip, hip. In we go. And now we're in the train. Oh, my God, this is it. Holy God. We're in the train now. Boy, that's a new feeling, see? And boom, they lock the doors. We sit there. We hang our equipment up on the rack. We're sitting down in our bunk and everybody's sweating. You know, he's a little scared. A couple of guys said, well, I <laughs> hear a rumor they're just going to send us to Florida down there. <laughs> Somebody says, yeah, uh, Florida, Norway. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Somebody says, yeah, yeah, well, you know, rumors are out. And then the train starts to roll. Ba-dum, 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 and on and on we go. And we're sitting there in the dark and it's getting hotter. And we are out about two hours. When this lieutenant comes down the down the row there, he says, all right, so I want three guys for KP, Shepard, Gasser, Ernie, let's go, all you three guys, KP, on the troop train, Christ's sake, there's 12,000 guys, you know, now you never see this in the movies, have you ever wondered how they eat on a troop train, well let me tell you, it's obscene. <laughs> Yeah, they have one car, see, and this car is totally empty, and it's got these big racks, and in these racks are set these garbage cans. And that's where the food is, see. (laughs) I'm serious, it's all there, and they've got these long stoves, and these guys are cooking up, and the KPs come back, and it is hotter than hell. Good God, is it hot in this train. And you are on 24 lousy hours. 20 faces, you're not going anywhere anyway. You know what the hell, you might as well be back here instead of playing pinochle. So me and, and Gasser and Edwards are back there. And all day long, we're, you know, and the whole train files past you, you see. They just go in a great endless circle. And by the time the last guy's through, the first guy's back again. See, it is dinner now, see. And they just keep going round and round. You just keep putting the powdered eggs in there, you know. You get real good at that, you know, bing, you know. Yeah, you do. You, do. you have to while away the time. You flip them sideways, you know. And say, Watch this wrist action, Gasser, like that. <laughs> Then you hit guys from the rear, you know, once in a while. Say, hey, watch it, there it comes. And they're just going on. Yeah, it's all the army, and it's getting hotter and hotter and hotter, and we're going on and on, and this train is going about 70 miles an hour, and the door is open, and you can see the, the scenery going by. Little towns. You see billboards. You see taverns. You see lights. And we're serving all night long, working away, cleaning the pots and pans. And now it is the next day. And it is really hot. And we're way the hell out somewhere. And we've got nothing on but our shorts. They never show this in the army. The Batman. Uh, Careful, son. This is a pro at work. They never show... They never show this. It, no, they, you never see scenes in the, the where the army really is. Half of the time, guys spend either sleeping or walking around with just their shoes on. <laughs> yeah, you know, laying around and shaving and, you know, just futzing around. That's what the army's about. You're looking around. And so we're in there. Here the, here the three of us are. We've got nothing but our GI shorts on. And these are just, you know, shorts. Our GI shorts... 
and our GI shoes. That's it. And our dog tags. Because we are sweating up a storm. You know? We're really sweating. Our crew cut, you know, they cut it right down to the bone. And we're working 24 hours and all of a sudden we're done. And the mess sergeant says, all right, you guys, you're all through. The next three guys are coming in. You guys can take it easy now. Fine job. And you know that great feeling when you have really done a rotten job? <laughs> and you really did it, you know? You really did it. You fed all these klutzes. They're all mine, my boys, you know? And they're all burping and everything. I did it, you know? <laughs> you know, it's a kind of a feeling, you know, like you're the, your big daddy or something. So we're all through, and we're sitting now... The three of us are, are cooling off and we're sitting on the edge of the platform of the train with our feet hanging over. Right in the door. The door is open, see. And it's getting twilight. It's beautiful. And we are way the hell out in Arkansas now. And you could see the Ozarks way off in the distance. They're purple. And it was one of those raised, elevated tracks. You know, with the gravel that goes down, you're about 30 feet high and the train is going along. And you can see the track winding off into the distance and the sun is hanging there and it's hot and you can smell the magnolias and the junk in the river. Oh, yeah, you know, it's a great feeling. And we're just sitting on the edge and just looking out and the wind is blowing. Me and Gasser and Ernie, we really done it. Our dog tags are hanging. And then the train starts to slow down. Just feel it, perceptible. And we look out, and we can see there's this water tower coming ahead. See, we're going to take on water. So the train goes, choom, 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 choom. Sits there. We're looking out, see. Ding, 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 ding. You know that sound? Dum, dum. And there's nothing except the road down below us. Way down on the bottom of this embankment is a road. A little country road in this little town. Just sort of spread out. And over here to our left, and directly below us, is one of these little shacks that you see on the road, you know, that says, eat. <laughs> Americans believe in getting to the, right down off the wick, you know, eat. <laughs> Imagine if Esso put over their signs, you know, uh, <laughs> 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 it'll come to that. This is a new world, you know. <laughs> it'll be in Gothic letters, though. It's all right. It says, eat, you know. And we see all these signs, you know, those tin signs tacked all over the outside of a red man's snuff. And, and you see it says hamburgers, and you can see a big sign there. It says Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola, Dr. Pepper, and all that. And we see about four redneck guys standing in there. And you could just see that little light. It was a kind of an orange light, see. And it's four redneck guys standing. One guy behind a counter, and the other three are standing with their overalls. And they're kind of looking up at the train. And all three of them got cans of beer. They're drinking a beer. See, it's a little beer joint. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm looking down. I can see that beer, see. We've been working 24 hours, you know, on nothing but that army coffee and jello and front like that. So I'm looking, oh, it's hot. And I say to Gasser, Gasser, how about a beer? And Gasser says, geez, I don't have any dough. I'm broke. Damn it, I left it back in the car. Well, I had this money belt around my waist, see. I had my three dollars and a half in there <laughs> that I saved for my last six months' pay. It was my life savings, see. And so I says, okay, wait a minute, listen. All right, I'll pop. I'll pop if one of you guys will go. And here's old Ernie looking down. His tongue is hanging out. <laughs> you know. So I says, okay, and I take out the quarter and I flip it. All right, Ernie, you go, man. And I give him the buck, see. 
And I says, go, man. And down he goes. He's running. His dog tags are flying and his GI shorts are wide open, you know. He runs down. And he gets down on the street scene. We're watching him down there, see. He's down there, and we see this little this little palaver going on. The guy behind the counter says, okay, buddy, yeah, you know, all right, I'll get you beer. And he turns around, and they're talking and futzing around, and he's, where you guys go? And all of a sudden, the train starts to move. Very slowly. It's going, boom. You know how it goes, choo, 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 boom. Oh, my God, Ernie. Hey, Ernie! And he looks up. I see him look up. He's got the three cans of beer. Choo, choo, choo. And the train starts to roll, and Ernie comes tearing out of that place, his dog tags flying, and he starts running up the embankment. And the stones are flying, and the train is moving faster and faster, and Ernie is running faster and faster at an angle. He keeps sliding down. He goes, Ernie, my God, Ernie, Ernie, the gas is Ernie, we're hanging. And it kept, and all of a sudden we knew he ain't going to make it. That terrible feeling, he's getting further and further away. And he's drifting, and it's getting dark out. We can see the Ozarks out there in the little town. And now, now he, is, he is down there on the road, running behind us. Our train is on its way to God knows where. And Gasser and me are sitting there looking, and all we can hear is tink, 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 his dog tags. It's Ernie. And we disappeared into, the, into that purple horizon and never saw Ernie again. Ernie with three cans of beer, with his dog tags, no money and nothing but a pair of shoes on, lost in Arkansas. My God. And we were scared out of our skull. Me and Gasser, you know, we go back, we're, we're through, so we go back and, and we try to sneak. I says, I says, Gasser, we better tell Lieutenant Cherry. He says, oh my God, are you out of your mind? Christ's sake. Shut up. Don't volunteer for nothing. I said, I don't know what, what, what it costs if you lose a GI. How many of you ever signed statement of charges? You bust a cup, it's eight cents, you know. Lose a GI, wow. And we, we go back and we sit down and Lieutenant Cherry comes back and he says, he says, you guys won't have to be on KP now for another month. He said, when we get, he says, hey, where's, where's Ernie? <laughs> He's back. He said, wait, did he go to John? Where, where is he? I cannot tell a lie, Lieutenant Cherry. We lost Ernie. It was our first casualty. He says, you lost Ernie? What do you mean you lost Ernie? He says, well, he says, well, this beer. He went out to get a beer and the train stopped. And we says, he's back in Arkansas. He says, for Christ's sake, don't say a word. <laughs> And Ernie was never again mentioned at our company. And Ernie became, like George Orwell says, an unperson. And you know, I once in a while at three o'clock in the morning, to this day, I wake up. You know, when you've been dreaming, you're sort of half asleep. I look up at the ceiling and I can hear ding, 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 ding. And I see Ernie, and I can I, I could just imagine Ernie somewhere right now, this minute, out in the darkness in the woods, in Arkansas. He doesn't know the war is over yet. Because you know what happens when you get caught in nothing but your shorts. If you think it's bad getting caught with your tie off in a town with the MPs. And I keep thinking, Ernie, wherever Ernie is, I'd like to get in touch. You know, I, I keep reading stories of these Japs, you know, they find on these islands out in the Pacific. 
You know, 25 years later, they still got their little bazooka. <laughs> One shell. If MacArthur comes here, I'll get him. <laughs> you know? And Ernie out there is waiting for Hitler. <laughs> so that's the story of Ernie, one of the great tragedies of my army career. Yeah.